Before we, before we read that, uh, I just want to take a moment this morning. Um, I know we did this a little bit last week, but I think it's worthy um, of it again. Uh, as you know, like there's, if, if you, unless you live under a rock, uh, but uh, as they say, I'm not saying you do, but um, if there, there's a lot of things happening uh, right now, and a lot, of, a lot of suffering and a lot of difficulty, all the way from the shooting in Buffalo to Uvalde, Texas, um, to Tulsa and the hospital that was shot up, and to yesterday, uh, Los Angeles uh, hospital was also shot up, and one dead there, and many wounded, and um, there's just a lot of things happening in our world, uh, not to mention uh, things are still going on, obviously, in the Ukraine, and, and that's all the stuff out there, and then not to mention in here, uh, there's things going on in all of your lives, and there's loss, and difficulties, and um, moves, and lives being uprooted, and so uh, that's a lot of things, right? And, and I think it is an interesting, I didn't plan this, but as I was thinking about this morning, just a moment of this morning of thinking about 2 Corinthians, God's power being made known or being made perfect in weakness. Um, next time, uh, this is a theme that I'm going to talk about throughout the summer when I give messages through 2 Corinthians, and this is really a picture of Paul's life, and this is a picture of First and Second Corinthians, and um, that God's power is made perfect in weakness, and weakness being the fact that we are we come to the end of all of our own resources, and we realize that the only thing we need and the only thing we have ultimately is God, and we fully and totally depend upon Him for everything. And so, that's a that's a little bit of the theme of what we're going to talk about today, and the theme of Second Corinthians. Um, and I think uh, I think certainly in a moment like this, as we just see so many things happening, and I know even in here, so many of us have experienced loss and difficulty, uh, it's important for us just to pause and say, I don't know about you, but that's why the Psalms are filled with laments, right? These lament Psalms where you can actually, you know, voice to God your frustration and hurt and confusion. Uh, God actually gives us language to do that. And so it's good for us to lament, that is to grieve, and even, even to express to God um, what the heck? I don't get it. You know, it's okay. Uh, I don't know if you know that. A third of the Psalms are lament or complaint Psalms. In other words, a third of the Psalms are God's king complaining to God about the difficulties of life. <laughs> I think that's telling, right? Life is difficult, and God's okay with us expressing honestly how difficult life is, right? And so I just want to take a moment this morning. Let's just let's just pray before we talk about Second Corinthians. Let's just pray. Uh, let's let's just consider uh, all these things that are going on. I'm just going to let it be quiet for a minute. And this might be the quietest moment of your whole week, right? Let's just take a moment of silence before God and just lift up to God your prayers, your concerns, your frustrations, your hurts, and lift up these families across our country and even right here who are going through many difficulties and losses and suffering. So let's pray.
Father, your, your word tells us in 2 Corinthians, in fact, that you are the Father of compassion and that you are the God of all comfort and that you comfort us in all of our trials so that we may comfort others with the same kind of comfort that we ourselves have received from you. And so God, for all of these places and all of these people, both out there and around this country and around the world, and also right here in this room today, for all who grieve and mourn, for all who are going through trials, God, May we hear that you are the God of all comfort, and you comfort us in all trials. I think of the psalmist who declared that you are a God who binds up the wounds of the brokenhearted, that you hear their prayers, that you bottle up their tears, that even every single tear that we cry, you bottle them up and you remember them. And so, God, we thank you that you are a compassionate God, that you're a father of compassion, and that you love us, and that you watch over us, and that you are the one who walks with us in the midst of difficulties and sufferings. These sufferings don't always go away, God, but you are the one who gives us endurance to go through them and to see your your hand at work in our lives in the midst of them. And so please do that, God, in all of these places, including here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at 2 Corinthians. And again, uh, strength and weakness is really the theme of 2 Corinthians, uh, probably the theme of all of both First and 2 Corinthians, and maybe the theme of Paul's life, to be honest, um, the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to be, we're going to, I'm going to do something today that's kind of different in terms of messages. We're going to do an overview of the whole book. Uh, we're just going to, we're going to travel a bit. We're going to give you some background and some overview and some big picture and just kind of to understand what's going on in this book. And then uh, as I come back and get to speak at different times, we're going to have some guest speakers this summer and I'll speak and Ozan will speak. But as I'm speaking, I'll, I'll walk through various passages of this, of this book, particularly in the first five chapters uh, we'll we'll hone in on that, but today we're just gonna we're gonna see the big picture. I think it's important sometimes to understand what's going on behind the behind the letter. Not sometimes; it's always important to understand what was actually going on uh, and what is this place called Corinth anyway. Um, what what was the deal with that? And so so we're gonna look at Corinth today. I think we're gonna find today that there's a lot of correlation between our lives and the lives of the Corinthians and our culture and the lives of the and the culture of the of Corinth in the ancient time. Um, so with that, we're going to stand today. I have a really long scripture passage today. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. All right, so we'll have you stand at the reading of God's word. And we do that simply because this is not our word, it's God's. And it's just a way of us physically acknowledging this is God's word and it comes with full authority uh, this morning. And so here are these, these two verses, First uh, Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, I should say, chapter 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. God, may you bless 
the teaching and the reading of your word. May you encourage your church today. May we also recognize the importance of that it is in weakness that your power is made perfect. Help us to understand that more fully today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the Apostle Paul obviously wrote 2 Corinthians, and in just a little bit, we're going to get into a, uh, there's little interesting things about the Bible that actually, I think, uh, lend itself to the credibility of the Bible. When you really study, uh, when you really study this book that we call the Bible or God's Word, uh, it's, it's easy simply for someone to say, well, it's just a book written by some people. Um, but the reality is, uh, for someone who would dismiss this as just a simple story, uh, I always kind of encourage them to say, I don't know if you've actually looked into it, uh, at the accuracy and the, the actual uh, facts or the truth behind our faith. That we, we don't have a blind faith. We have a faith that is rooted and built in truth, historical truth, real truth. And, um, and so today we're going to look at a little bit of the, the backdrop of this, but Paul uh, wrote this second letter to the Corinthians, and we'll look at, we'll look at the first one in just a minute. Uh, but he wrote this, and I love his introductions because he says, uh, Paul is, a, is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and notice how he says, it's by the will of God. Paul did not assert himself into some position, but it's God who called him into the position to be an apostle, to represent Jesus on this earth and to establish churches at the very beginning of the, the churches, uh, the gospel going forward. So it's by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is a companion that traveled with Paul uh, all around. And you see him, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see Timothy was a companion of his that went all around. Paul was a mentor to Timothy. And he says, to the church of God that is at Corinth. Um, the church is interesting back then. Uh, you didn't have like a, a church. It wasn't like, a, you know, First Baptist and Second Baptist and Third Lutheran and Fifth Presbyterian over here. Like, you didn't have that. You had the church that was in Corinth. And that church may have been spread out all over Achaia, right, all over the countryside in, in smaller house churches, but it was one church. And so it's a very different time than what we live in today, and that's a whole other message we could get into. Um, but, but that's what we're talking. He says, it's to the church at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Achaia is the, in fact, it's the Peloponnesian little peninsula there, Achaia, and we'll see a little picture of that here in a moment. Uh, to all the saints who are there, and then Paul gives his standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's really a crucial thing, my paper's following me, it's a crucial thing to, to hear that little greeting from Paul, because as you're going to find out today, uh, Paul's relationship with this church is very rocky. Uh, there is some serious stickiness going on, some serious tension and so when Paul, in this letter, begins by simply stating that he's an apostle by the will of God, it's very important because one of the main things Paul's going to do in this letter is he's defending his apostleship to them because they are questioning his apostleship. They are questioning his ministry. They are questioning everything about him at this point. And so, so it's important that it's not just a simple greeting, but for Paul, this is almost like the, the, the thing that he's going to be defending throughout this whole book, uh, this whole letter is his apostleship. And so, uh, with that, let me just give you a background about Corinth. Uh, Corinth is an inter interesting city back in the day, uh, and, and I'm going to go through some, some details here quick, and then we'll, we'll talk about Paul's relationship. So first of all, the background of this book. 
Corinth was a city of opportunity, lots of opportunity, filled with a whole bunch of opportunists who had come to Corinth at that time to build a better life. Uh, the people who were flooding into Corinth were coming there because they, they, wanted, they wanted to make it, right? It's like, it's like the young aspiring actress or actor who, who floods to Hollywood because it's, they're, they're looking for that big break. They want to they wanna make it big. They want to become famous. They want to be somebody, right? So if you're going to be somebody, uh, you go to Hollywood or you go to Nashville, Tennessee, and, and you're going to make it great, right? And so that's why people are flooding to this city called Corinth. In fact, 102 years prior to this, the city was a ghost town. It was completely devastated. The Romans completely uh, trashed it in, war, in a war that, that devastated this city. And then 102 years later, that was in 146 B.C. In, in 44 B.C., uh, Julius Caesar rebuilt this city in its, in, in its glory at this time, at, during the time of Paul. And he built this place into, uh, it, was, it was an incredible place. A beautiful city, one of the envies of all the other cities uh, was Corinth. And, and Corinth, in fact, it was named a provincial capital of Greece. It was a huge, booming trade center. In fact, you'll see there, if you, if you throw the uh, picture up there, you'll see, you'll see where Corinth is located. You've heard of the Ithmus, right? No picture? Oh, you took the picture out. Oh, man. So if you have your Bible, you have to turn back to those little maps in the back. Yeah, that's yeah. Sorry. So, so there's no picture, but but if you if you look on a map and you look at uh, ancient Greece, you'll see this little Peloponnesian peninsula that's that's only attached by a little thread called the Isthmus Trail or the Isthmus Way, and this. This thread is this, this narrow little piece of land that connected the peninsula to the mainland, and there's there's a there's a heart, you know the a, Adriatic Sea on one side, the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea on the other, and it's it's this massive trade center, uh, two ports on each side. It was it was a, a way where commerce went through this place like crazy, and so it was a it was a booming city filled with all kinds of opportunities, uh, and and in fact. Uh, it was a place where many would say it had no roots and no tradition at this point. It's like a brand new place. That it's sort of maybe maybe a little bit like the booming cities during the gold rush of our days, right? There it is. Look at these guys working on the fly. Look at that, man. This is this is so good. You see the so yeah. See if there where it says uh, Corinth. You see that little tiny strip there? Yeah. So Athens, so Corinth would have been right between Athens and Sparta down there, about halfway between. That little tiny strip of land is what connected them uh, together and it was a huge trade route, right? And so there's a major city, Corinth, that was built right in there, became a big part. You guys are awesome, man. Look at these guys working. Wow. Uh, yeah, look at that. That's right. No one ever acknowledges the sound people and the computer people until they do something like that. Right? We should be thanking them every Sunday. They they make things go well. Oh man. So, so basically, there's it, it's such a new city, such new things happening that the thing that mattered in Corinth was charisma, and and I mean charisma and wealth. If if you could if you had charisma, you were a a uh, you know influential personality, and you had wealth, you were going to make it big, and you would get known, and you would rise to the top in this place called Corinth. It's sort of like the Western expansion of the United States. 
It's like places like Denver, Chicago and Denver and, and San Francisco back in the day when, when the, it was ex, the United States was expanding across. Um, one person put it this way, Corinth was a freewheeling boomtown filled with materialism, pride, and self-confidence that comes with having, it, having made it in a new place with a whole new identity. It was a sort of pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality that became so characteristic of also of our American frontier uh, in the, in, back in the day. Um, Corinth was also an entertainment and sports place. Um, you've maybe heard of something called the Ithmian Games uh, that basically rivaled the Olympics back then. And things like uh, wrestling and javelin throwing and boxing and, and uh, discus throwing, uh, they, they had all these things. In fact, I was reading through, they, they had discus throwing, javelin, long jump, chariot races, poetry reading, and singing. Where's that in the Olympics, in the Olympics today, Right? I don't see any poetry reading and singing, but that was a part of their games back then. It was actually part of the Olympics back then as well. I did not know this until I was looking through this. And so it was a, it was a major city that, had, that was like the center of entertainment and sports. In fact, um, many would say it was, it was the place of night, the nightlife, like it had a nightlife like no other. It was the place where you wanted to go for entertainment. It's a place where you wanted to go for sports. Uh, in fact, it was, it was called the master of harbors, the crossroads of all Greece, the passage of all mankind. These are phrases used of this place. So I want to give you that background because of this. It's into this self-made, status-seeking, me-focused, I-did-it-my-way, entertainment and sports culture that Paul brings the gospel. The Apostle Paul shows up in Acts chapter 18 in this place that's got it all figured out, right? These are the people of all people. These are the people that got life by the tail, right? And Paul rides into town with a whole new way of seeing the world called the gospel of the kingdom. And he, he comes into this, this culture with the message of the gospel and he begins to proclaim the gospel. It, if you read back, if you go back to chapter 18 of Acts, and we're not going to read through it, but if you go read through that, it was not easy, Right? The, the church did not get established very easily. It was a very difficult culture to break in because everyone is self-sufficient. They don't need anything. Why would they need the gospel? It sounds a little bit like us, right? Does it not? Like we got everything. We have what we need for the most part. Us in this room, we have for the most part what we need. From, from the greatest to the smallest, we have what we need. The, the culture is very much like ours. Um, we, we uh, if we were to admit it, we are also motivated maybe by the same values, the same status-seeking uh, of them. We, we look for a better salary, a better home, a better vehicle, the right connections, the right friends, the right clothes, the right shoes. Uh, if you have a son or daughter that's, uh, that's a good athlete, then you just propelled yourself up the social ladder. Uh, if, if we're consumed with status, in fact, in our day, we're consumed with status and looks and appearances, so much so that plastic surgery is a billion-dollar industry in our country, right? Because we are all about looking good, having things put together, uh, even, even to the point of getting hair back, Raymond. Um, I have not bought into that yet, but uh, yeah, apparently you can, all right? <laughs> so the reality is, it's into this status-seeking, self-made, self-confident, 
uh, outward appearance, you know, motivated, I did it my way, entertainment and sports culture, that we are to also live an alternative life, that we are to live out the values of the kingdom. This, this culture is very much like Corinth, very much like Corinth. And the, and the church in that day, as Paul went and preached the gospel, uh, the church there becomes this very unique church. It's the church that Paul is going to have the most trouble with, right? These, these letters are going to be rocky, and there's some issues going on, and Paul has a major headbutt, major clash that's going on, and, and, and yet the reality is um, Paul, in, in fact, in this, if we were to go through all the statements, Paul, here's a test for our character. Paul, even though this church is going to um, probably, probably hate on him the most of any church, even though he sacrificed so much for them, uh, Paul says some incredibly gracious and loving and affectionate things towards them. Um, there's, a, there's a test, right? Uh, instead, of, instead of just kind of poking them in the eye, he does get a little upset, and we're going to find out. But, but he, he loves them dearly as children, he says, as sons and daughters in the faith. And so there's a huge, uh, I think, challenge there for us to, to think about. So, Paul's relationship with the church. Let me just go through and give you this big picture, and then I'll talk about power made perfect in weakness, and we'll go through this letter for a moment. Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church was incredibly rocky. Uh, if you go back and read Acts chapter 18 again, you, you could see this whole, how it all began. But it began with Paul. It began with this couple called uh, Priscilla and Aquila and his companions, Timothy and Silas. They stood out in the public square. They proclaimed the gospel. People would come and, and listen to them. There was lots of opposition, and there were people that responded to the faith, and the church was established, and Christians uh, began to, to gather up into a church. And it wasn't long after that, Paul leaves uh, Corinth to go to Ephesus that he receives bad news. And Paul would often go to places, if you read the New Testament Acts, Paul would go to these places and then he would send his companions back to the places where he just were, he was just at, to hear, to make sure the churches were doing okay. He would receive word from them. And so Paul's sending out Titus to go and check on the Corinthian church and Titus comes back. He sends out Timothy at one point. They come back, they give bad news. There's things going on in the church that are not good. And so Paul is a bit distraught. And so, so there's a, I think there's a slide up there that will give you a little bit of, uh, maybe, is there a slide up there? I, I can't say that now. I don't know what Raymond did. So, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I'll just stick to my outline. But, but here's, here's if, I could, if I could give you a picture of this, this is something interesting about the Bible. There's a lot of things that we have and a lot of things we don't have. So, so Paul visits, visit A, let's say, exhibit A, visit A, the first time Paul goes to Athens, he preaches the gospel, a church is born. While he's in Ephesus, he receives word back that things are not good. And so Paul responds, right, with, with, a, with a letter, with two letters actually, and so letter A is 1 Corinthians, and you can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So that's the first letter he gives. And the reason why he wrote 1 Corinthians was because they sent a bunch of questions back to him. So we know this from the letters too. So they, they had all these questions. So you, you can imagine a group of people in Corinth who've been saved as Christians now in a, in a, in a culture that is completely... I mean, as far as values, as far as everything that the gospel stands for, the culture is completely the opposite of it, right? And so these new Christians have a lot of questions. 
Like, like interesting questions like, okay, I became a Christian, but my wife doesn't believe. Now what do I do? Practical stuff, right? Real stuff. Or um, I used to sacrifice in the temple uh, meat. I used to you know, do the sacrifices in the temple and eat the meat sacrificed to these idols. It, is it okay for me to eat that meat now? Like, what, what do we do with that? Um, if I get invited over to my friends who don't believe and they're eating this meat that was sacrificed, what, is that, is that going to be okay? Like, these are practical things, right? How are you going to relate to and connect with your neighbors all of a sudden? Uh, how are you going to deal with family matters? There's all kinds of things that come up. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians in, in a, as a means of answering these questions. So that's letter A. So visit A, church's birth. Letter A is his response to their questions. Letter uh, or his, yeah, in response to the questions. And then Paul hears more bad news, right? So more bad news comes back to him. Uh, and, and so therefore, he has what's called in the text, and we'll see this later on, not today's sermon, what he calls in, in, the, in 2 Corinthians a very disastrous visit. And if you know Paul, Paul actually says to them, there's something so serious going on in the church that Paul says to them, if you don't take care of this, in, other, in fact, uh, I'll just tell you like the, the thing that was so bad was there's a person who was claiming to be a Christian in the church and was yet having an incestuous relationship with somebody in the church. And Paul said this is something that not even those outside the church do. It was so horrendous, and yet they were, they were okay with it, right? And so Paul's like, um, you, need to, you, need to, you need to take care of this. This is not good. This is actually, uh, you know, marring or, or the, the name of Christ. And so he calls them to take care of it. And he says, if you don't take care of it, uh, if you take care of it, I'll come in peace. If you don't take care of it, I'm going to come with a whip. <laughs> it's like dad saying, hey, um, you need to get the house in order. If you don't get the house in order, uh, it, it's, it's going to be a very difficult visit, right? And uh, this is kind of what's going on, right? And, and, and again, this isn't just because Paul's being mean, right? It's because there's things at stake, the reality, the testimony of the church, the reality of the gospel in that faith community, in that church was at stake, right? And so Paul's saying, hey, make sure that you preserve that testimony by helping each other grow and mature in Christ. And this sin that's going on that everyone's aware of is not good. And it's actually harming the name of Christ in that community. And it's not setting an example that's alternate from the culture. And so he has this visit B, which is disastrous. Um, he returns uh, to Ephesus after this visit. He writes letter C that we don't have. There's a letter that is indicated in Corinthians that we actually don't have, where he writes this letter where he challenges them. We see this in 2 verse 3 and 7 verse, verse 8 in this book, where there's this letter that he wrote. He challenged them. We don't have that letter, the body of that letter. And the problem, uh, the problem that was going on in Corinth is maybe our own temptation as well. The temptation is, and the problem that they had, which we could easily have, is that the attitude of the culture had infiltrated the church, right? Or maybe the reality is, is that people had come to know Christ, just like me or you, in this culture, and now they're a part of the church and now it's a matter of trying to figure out what does it look like? What does it mean to actually be a Christian? What does it mean to live a life uh, for Christ? What does that look like? And so, so 
the thing that happened was the church began, the same status-seeking that was out in the culture began to creep into the church. The, the same appearance-oriented, like trying to look and appear to have it all together and have everything figured out that was in the culture also was in the church. The same motivation towards simply living life based on how I feel, you know, if it feels right, do it kind of attitude that was in the culture also existed in the church. And, and this, this was the problem that was going on. Um, they, they, they basically uh, looked very much like the world around them. Quickly, they began to look. And so Paul, for the sake of the gospel, again, is seeking to challenge them and, and sharpen them and help them understand why this matters, why this is so serious. And therefore, uh, he, the severe letter that we don't have uh, and 1 Corinthians, those two letters were written to sort of deal with this problem, and 2 Corinthians is then written as a follow-up to all of this. They acted, they did some things, they took care of business, and now Paul's going to do a follow-up letter, this final letter, in anticipation of another visit that he's praying will not be severe and difficult and disastrous like the first one, um, or the second, because this would be the third one, technically, in the line. So does all that make sense? You're like, you can see how rocky this is, right? It's not simple, right? The lines aren't simple. Here's a church, a new fledgling church that is going through real stuff, trying to learn what it means to live the life in Christ in the midst of their culture, in the midst of a community that looks very different than them. They themselves one day were seeking, seeking status and appearance and wealth and fame and all these things. And now all of a sudden they're told, now your life is hidden in Christ, hidden with God in Christ. That now he, the, you think of Galatians 2, 2, that I've been crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That mentality versus the self-made, self-centered, status-seeking, appearance-oriented life. And these two things are going to clash big time because Corinth was a place where there was uh, a lot of that going on and a lot of people, uh, not just outside the church, but in the church. And so, uh, the reason why Paul has to defend his ministry and his apostleship, his calling from God, is because everything about Paul's life doesn't fit what they think. It doesn't fit the culture, right? Um, in fact, let me, let me just give you a list of criticisms that they're going to give of Paul. They criticize Paul because he changed his plans. Have you ever changed your plans? You ever, had, you ever told somebody you were going to do something and then all heck broke loose and you had to change your mind? You ever had that happen? Yeah. Okay, that's, that's normal, right? That happens. Uh, Paul was going to visit the Corinthians, but then some stuff happened, <laughs> namely some beatings uh, on his journeys, like a whole bunch of things happened, right? And therefore, uh, he didn't get to come when he said he was going to come, and they criticized him for it. Hey, you said you were coming, but you didn't come. So you can't be an apostle, because an apostle wouldn't do that, right? <laughs> Does that sound crazy? Yeah, it sounds crazy to me too. Um, they said that he was weak, in presence and stature. That his presence and his stature uh, didn't compare. And what did it not compare to? There were these people called rhetoricians that went through Corinth all the time. They were polished, 
very good speakers. They were, they were professional public speakers, and they would give these speeches. And so the church was saying, look, look at, the, they, were, they were sharp, they were put together, they spoke really well, and the church is looking at them going, man, and they were, these were people who were speaking like gospel things, right? And Paul, they're going, the church is going, look, look at these guys, and then look at Paul. Paul's kind of weak in stature. His presence isn't very good. Never mind he's faced 39 lashings, you know, twice, and he's been beat up for his faith, right? He's literally faced all kinds of trials. And so, when, yeah, when he's in your presence, he, he looks a little bit beat up, maybe a little tired. I don't know. I'm just guessing from all the things that he's been through. But they're criticizing him for his appearance. Again, you see the culture creeping into the church. It's about appearances. It's about looks. They said that he wasn't a good speaker in comparison to all these rhetoricians that were coming through. He wasn't a good speaker. He, he, didn't, he didn't speak as well as them. He wasn't polished. This is why Paul says many times, we did not come to, uh, to with wise and persuasive words. You remember Paul says that in 1 Corinthians? He reiterates it in 2 Corinthians. I did not come to you, Corinthians, with wise and persuasive words like the other other uh, speakers that were all polished and put together and had these really eloquent speeches. He said, I didn't come with eloquent speech. I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Right? And so, so Paul's having to defend even his, even his speaking style to them because they're, they're criticizing him. He didn't accept their money. Here's an interesting thing. You got a church in Corinth that was probably a fairly wealthy church. These people that were coming, they were in the place where you, you made money, right? And so in, this is the one church in, in the book of Acts that probably had a lot of do, a dough on hand, right? They had some coin to share. Uh, they, they had money. And here Paul comes, and he ministers to them and amongst them for a, a fair amount of time, for a year or more. He, he's there, and he doesn't accept anything from them. He won't take it. He, in fact, works as a tent maker with a guy in the community there while he's ministering to them, and he makes his own money. He didn't do that from everyone, by the way. The Philippians, he praises them because they actually supported him, and he received it. The Thessalonians, they, they gave him money, he, he took it. Why the Corinthians? Why did he not take their offerings? Why did he say, no, nah, nah, I think I'll... I think I'll make my own money here. What was that about? Well, imagine these self-sufficient people who have plenty of money to give. Paul did not want anything to hinder the gospel amongst them. He didn't want to feed their self-sufficiency by them saying, well, of course Paul's successful planting churches because we, we are behind him, right? He didn't want anything that would distract away from Christ, anything at all that would get in the way. And so in this case, he did not accept their support. And in fact, he asked them for money, but only money to send to Jerusalem to help the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were living in dire straits, who were being persecuted and suffering. So I want you to imagine this. Here's these people who are very self-made, very put together, and Paul's asking them, Gentile Christians to take up an offering to give to these Jewish Christians 
right, in Jerusalem who are being persecuted and suffering for their faith. And of all the churches that Paul went to, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see a thread where Paul spends much of his ministry not just preaching the gospel in cities, but going back to these churches and collecting an offering to take to the suffering Christians in, back in Jerusalem. And so of all the churches, Corinthians, the Corinthians drug their feet in taking up this offering. In fact, he's going he's gonna to give them a little bit of a challenge where he says, you know the Macedonians, the Macedonian Christians, that would be Thessalonica, Philippi, he says they, they not only gave out of what they had, but out of a severe affliction and poverty, they gave more than they had. He says that to the Corinthians because he's, I mean, let's just be honest, he's trying to like poke them a bit and say, what's your guys' deal? Are you not going to contribute? Because they said they were going to, but they didn't. And so Paul has to come back and ask him again. And then when they actually do give money to him, they give it to Titus, who's supposed to bring it back to Paul, who's going to take it to Jerusalem. Then they accuse Titus of taking that money and Paul using it for his own purposes. Right? Isn't this great? It's a wonderful group of people. We love it. Right? It's very much unlike anything that would ever happen in today. You know, like none of this stuff would happen, right? <laughs> Um, here's the one I love the most, is that they accused him uh, of not being an apostle. He clearly couldn't be a man of God and an apostle because he suffered too much. He suffered too much. Why is he always in jail? Why is he always being beaten up? Like something's got to be wrong with this guy. Why do people not like him, <laughs> right? <laughs> I know that sounds really absurd because you've read the whole New Testament, right? And you see this as a pretty amazing man of God who, who was willing to stand firm in the gospel and proclaim it even at the expense of his life. But they saw it. They saw it a whole different way. In fact, they held on to an ancient belief that if bad things are happening to you, then you must be doing something wrong. Right? That, that was the Old Testament ancient belief that had spilled over into that culture, that, that, if, that if you're suffering, if you, don't, if you don't have much, if you're living in poverty, if there's things going wrong in your life or people don't all, everybody doesn't flock to you and love you, then you must be sinning in some way. You must be doing something wrong. Otherwise, you'd be living in, in wealth and blessing and everything would be going good. Everybody would love you, right? And so they're looking at it from their culture again. See how the, the mindset of the culture creeps into the church? And here's a church go looking at Paul saying, why is this dude in prison? Why, why don't we listen to him? He's always in prison. He's always being chased out of every town, including Corinth. He got chased out of there, right? What? There must be something wrong with this guy because they're not chasing out these what they called super apostles. They weren't chasing out these really eloquent speakers. They were accepting them, embracing them. They're not spending time in jail. Their suits are unscathed, you know. Paul didn't probably have one, right? And so, so these are the criticisms uh, that they were offered. And so you can imagine, I don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh that gets this theme that we have. I don't know what it was in Corinth or in uh, in Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12, where that the the thorn in the flesh. He says, "I I had this thorn in the flesh, and three times I prayed, and God didn't take it away." And and God said to him, "You know, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." But you could just I don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. There was an, an affliction for him. Some say it was a physical thing. Could very well be. There's lots of evidence that we could probably point to. Some say it was probably just all of this stuff, 
Like, he was literally afflicted in every place, had all kinds of people against him, all kinds of things happened, physically beaten several times for his faith. In fact, he was left for dead one time outside the city, stoned to death, and they thought he was dead. He gets back up, if you remember, and walks back into the city and proclaims the gospel. This guy is like the energizer bunny, right? He doesn't give up. His God is big and strong, right? Uh, It's crazy when you read those kinds of stories uh, and, and yet the reality is they, they looked at that as a weakness, as, a, as something that was not worthy of an apostle or someone who would claim to be called by God to minister. And, and so Paul finds himself having to proclaim to them that my, my grace is sufficient for you, as Jesus said to him. He says, for my power, God says to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. There's an alternative worldview right there. That actual strength according to the Christian life. You see, some, some people, there used to be a book when I was in college uh, taking theology classes called The Upside-Down Kingdom. That everything about the kingdom of God is upside down compared to this world. That whoever comes up with a, a worldview that says that my power is actually made perfect in your weakness. That when I am weak, that's when I'm strong, Paul says in Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. And what that means is, what Paul's saying is, is it's not, it's not weak in the sense that Paul, doesn't, Paul obviously has some strength. He's got a bit of fortitude to be stoned outside of a city and get back up and nearly dead and walk back into the city, right? He's not some, you know, wimpy guy, right? He's got some strength. But what it means is, is that Paul lived his life in such a way that he had come to the end of himself, He was forced, in fact, to the end of himself. He came to the end of all of his own resources, and he had to rely completely and solely on the power of God to work. Because he was in prison many times, because he was beaten many times, because there was constantly Jews running around chasing him out of cities, threatening to take his life, and he would escape just barely. And so God's power in Paul's life is made perfect in weakness because God, he had to trust God with everything at every turn. If something good was going to happen, it wasn't from Paul's strength because according to the Corinthians, he had none. He had none. Everything, in one sense, had been beaten out of him when it comes to that. He had nothing. And so, in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, the whole theme is strength and weakness uh, let me just give you a couple points, and then let's walk through a few verses, and we'll, we'll take communion together. What Paul's going to be saying through this, especially these first five chapters of this book, which is probably, I will say this, um, probably some of the more uh, integral parts of my own Christian life and journey, especially when it comes to what it means to minister. What, what does gospel ministry look like? Because that's what Paul's going to share with us in these first five chapters. And so Paul is going to defend and show uh, this, this truth of strength and weakness. He's going to show that true Christian ministry is about making much of Jesus and his power, not of us and our abilities and our strength. Counterfeit Christian ministry then, Paul's going to show, and he's going to confront them big time, uses Jesus to make much of ourselves and our own abilities. Um, that never happens in, our, in cultures, right? Not then and not now, right? People use the name of Jesus, say to get elected maybe. I don't know. Happens sometimes. Um, and what we find in this book is that God, what I just said, is that God delights in using feeble, humble servants. 
to show his greatness, to show his power, to put on display the gospel. Um, let me just t- walk you through this book. If you have your Bibles, you can thumb with me, but I'm just going to cruise really fast through these verses. So chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, let me just show you this theme. He says, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, catch this, utterly burdened beyond our strength that we we despaired of life itself. Indeed, verse 9, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. But what was that about? He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There's the theme right there. Look at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. In other words, Paul's like, I took great pains to make sure I live this way among you, amongst you, because of the possibilities of misunderstanding. I love that. Um, may we seek to, to live with simplicity and godly sincerity amongst our neighbors. Uh, look at ver- chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. He says in chapter 3, verses 46, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Chapter 4, verse 5. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, for we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, You can see the pressing on the culture, right? Pressing on what's going on. We're not proclaiming ourselves. We're not putting ourselves up as this polished, professional, put-together people. He says what we proclaim in verse 4, or verse 5, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Beautiful words. Verse 7, this is one of my favorite lines, one of my favorite verses. Verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Think about that. The treasure he's talking about is the gospel message, the truth that Jesus Christ has come to this earth as a man and lived a perfect life and died a death on the cross we couldn't die, was buried in the tomb, was by the power of God raised from the dead, given new life, that all who believe in him would have eternal life Right? We'd have their sins forgiving, would have life with God, and would have eternal life forever and ever with Him. He says, We have this beautiful, powerful treasure, the gospel, and God intentionally has housed this treasure, entrusted it to clay pots. Does that make any sense at all? Absolutely no sense at all. If you know anything about archaeology, you know that clay, when they find clay, that's like the refuse of archaeology because it's everywhere. It's the common stuff, and it's always broken, right? So in other words, Paul's saying this beautiful gospel message that is to be proclaimed to the world through, as he says, he says he's given it to cracked pots. And the reason why he's entrusted something so precious to cracked pots is so that we won't pat ourselves on the back and take all the credit, but it'll be so that the power belongs to God and not to us. We cannot say that we have it figured out, and so we need to stop acting sometimes like we do. We don't. 
We are cracked pots at best who have a big God who loves us, who by his power through cracked pots, can, or, or someone used to say, uh, we, he draws straight lines with crooked rulers, right? We're just a bunch of crooked rulers, cracked pots that God in his power, not ours, draws these beautiful straight lines right back to him, Right? This is, this is the picture of the gospel that Paul is going to give in chapter 5, verse 12. Let me give a couple more just to give you this theme. It just goes over and over. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again. I love this. He's confronting them. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. <laughs> that sounds a little bad, right? So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not what is in the heart. In other words, when he says boast about us, boast about the way we live life, not these super apostles, and so that they would be able to boast not about outward appearances because that's not the way Paul's living, but they would actually focus on what's in the heart. Chapter 8, give you a couple more here. Chapter 8, I love this. Uh, 8 verse 1 1 through 3 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, For in a severe test of affliction, this is the passage I was telling about, the abundance of joy, the extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as as, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord. And, And then he goes on. He's giving them an example of people, a church, who trusts in God and not in themselves. They looked to God to be the provider of means, not in their own abilities, not in even their own physical abilities. They, they trusted in God alone. One last verse that I want to give you, uh, chapter 12. Turn over to chapter 12, verse 9. I love this. When he says, uh, in fact, actually look at verse 11, because I already gave you verse 9 through 10. This will give you a little bit of an idea about the super apostles. And Paul uses a lot of sarcasm, by the way. So those of us who have the gift of sarcasm, I think it, it, some people are like, oh, yes, it's in the Bible, right? (laughs) I don't know if it's a gift, but Paul uses a lot of sarcasm. Because what Paul's doing is, it's, let me give you an example of what he's doing. It's like a father or a mother, like, it's when your kids, you know, at 12 are trying to tell you what's up, as if they have, their collective wisdom of 12 years trumps the, you know, 50 years of wisdom that you have, right? And... And, uh, and so in that moment, what do you do? You say, oh, yeah, because you got it all figured out, right? You know what's up, right? Paul does that over and over again. Look at, look at verse 11. He says, I have been a fool, and you forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. That's just a tiny one there. There's going to be several times where Paul's going to be like, uh, oh, yeah, you, you're strong, and I'm weak. Oh, yeah, you're wise, and I'm not. Like, he's going to use that language just to go, okay, okay, kids, (laughs) you got it figured out. All right, all right, you know. Uh, That's what he's going to use, but he's, he's like, telling them, like, you've driven me to be a fool, you know. In fact, what he has to do is he has to defend himself. Can you imagine having given your life, literally put your life on the line that they would know the precious treasure that the gospel is? He has loved them. He's everything. He laid it on the table in a year or more of ministry to the Corinthians and that's why this church exists and the very same church comes back and completely tears him down and completely trashes him in comparing him to worldly wisdom 
outward appearances, status-seeking, wealth and money and fame and, and eloquent speaking. I can imagine, it doesn't share in here totally, but I can imagine Paul being extremely distraught, thinking, what in the world is wrong with my people, right? And so in this passage, the Apostle Paul is going to defend what true ministry looks like, and I'll end with this. True ministry, Paul's going to show us, looks like Jesus. If you have a vision of what it means to be a Christian, it should be big enough to encompass Jesus, his life. Jesus came to this earth as the Son of God, sinless Son of God, and he was born in a barn. Talk about no status, right? Uh, you read Isaiah 53 when it talks about the suffering servant, that he, that, that he was stricken and spitten, smitten, that we esteemed him not. He was completely mistreated. And the Apostle Paul simply looks to Jesus and says, hey, I'm okay with my lot here. I'm okay with being, in fact, put in prison for the sake of the gospel because my, gospel, my ministry life, simply, I'm simply trying to live and look like Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's what we should aspire to as well, that we should aspire to be like Jesus. I know that sounds like a duh, right? Of course we should. But Jesus wasn't liked all the time. He was eventually crucified and killed he was an outcast. His very close companions abandoned him in his worst moment. And yet he was triumphant and victorious. And in fact, it was in weakness that you were saved. Right? He submitted himself to the cross, to death for our sake, that we might have life. That's the picture of the gospel. Power made perfect in weakness. God defies the wisdom of this world. God uses the things that, as he says in 1 Corinthians, God uses the things that are not to put to shame the things that are. Right? He uses those who have no status to put down those who think they have all the status. That's the picture of what it means to be a Christian, is to live like Jesus, to look like Jesus, to smell like Jesus, to have a life that just puts forth Jesus at every turn. Let us live and aspire for that that we would be like him here in this culture that's very similar to Corinth. Let us also be those who live that way. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your mercies. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Paul's life, his example, his witness, his testimony that God, he alone, um, you, you've, you've used him as an example to us as someone who lives like Jesus in the midst of a, of a, of a culture that that has a worldview that's very different, in fact, the total opposite. We thank you, God, for your grace that is sufficient for Paul is also sufficient for us, that your power is made perfect in weakness. So as Paul declares, for when I am weak, then I will be strong. So let us, God, come to the end of our own resources and put our trust and our hope fully, completely, and totally in you, that the people around us would be able to see the beauty of the gospel of the kingdom in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.